I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Joanne Steen, author and founder of Grief Solutions. Uh, Her new book is We Regret to Inform You, a survival guide for gold star parents and those who support them. Losing a son or daughter is always earth-shattering, but for Gold Star parents, the loss of a grown child in military service comes with unique challenges. Joanne Steen offers comfort for grieving Gold Star families as well as much-needed insight to their loved ones. As a widow of a naval aviator, Steen's personal experience, along with her training in crisis management, enables her to effectively address many of the thorniest issues that confront Gold Star parents. She's a board-certified counselor, military widow, and the founder of Grief Solutions, a training company on grief, loss, and resilience. She's worked with more than 40 diverse organizations, including the U.S. Department of Defense, the Canadian Armed Forces, and a host of federal, corporate, and nonprofit organizations. Nice to have you here. Welcome to the show, Joanne. Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate being here. All right. When we're thinking of... I. Obviously, as I, I guess I already said in the beginning, in, in the introduction, I mean, the loss of a child, any child, any time in your life is 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 tragic. One of the worst or the worst tragedies that, that a yes, person can have. Yeah. So I guess the first question is, what is the main, what is the difference between losing a child in the military, being a gold star parent, as to just, uh, let's say, losing a child to disease or accident or, or in, in any other way, but that's not associated with the military. Mm-hmm. When, um, when Gold Star parents lose their children, what they have is a double loss, and it's double loss that's not easily understood. They've lost their child, whom they know as their child. So they know, they know John, they know Cindy, but then they, that, that personal loss is intertwined with the national loss of a service member. So while the country is is remembering and recognizing, let's say, Sergeant Jones, mom and dad are burying John. And this combination of personal loss and national loss is is difficult to maneuver through. And as I said earlier, it's one that few understand. When you say it's difficult to maneuver through, talk to us about what are those difficulties? What are, what are those differences? What are they having to, as you say, it's a national loss, but it's a personal loss. They lost their baby. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are they, how are they, what are they trying to navigate? How are they trying to navigate this loss in a different way? Sure. There's three things. Excuse me one moment. <laughs> and I apologize. I'm dealing with Virginia allergies. I get that. Many of my guests. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Okay. There's three things that happen when you have a military loss. Now, some of these factors are present in the in the civilian sector, and some of them aren't. And the best way I've used to describe it is to think of the perfect storm. So, in, in the movie The Perfect Storm with George Clooney, George was faced with three three weather conditions, three three weather fronts that were coming together to produce this just catastrophic weather event. So, for Gold Star parents, it's a lot like the perfect storm. First thing is is that they've lost they've lost their son or daughter, and it's just it's against the order of nature for a parent to bury their child. The second thing is that the death was sudden and unexpected. Most of the time, 80% of the deaths in the military are sudden and unexpected and may have been far away from their home. And when we have a sudden death and an unexpected death, what happens is that it takes these survivors, it's going to impact the survivors how they just cope with the news, how they can internalize the news, much less internalize the death. The cause of the death and the circumstances of it are going to influence what the survivors deal with down the road. So 
So here's the parents. They've got the first two pieces of that perfect storm, the loss of their child at a young age, military casualties, the average age is 28. It's a sudden and unexpected death, probably far from home. In many instances, it's traumatic, and there's great damage done to the body, which renders either unviewable remains or sometimes no remains at all. When I read your book, I want to say, I just want to talk about one of those, because I think this is important. You know, 80% Mm -hmm. are unexpected deaths. And I guess as a uh, a civilian, I always thought, Mm -hmm. well, if my child is going to, you know, going to be in the military and and go to war, I would, my expectation would be different, that they wouldn't, maybe would not come back. And that really hit home with me. Uh, That's not really true, you're saying, because most of them do come back. And uh, so... If you're trying to perhaps talk to a grieving parent or help or be supportive, it's really important to really understand all of this because I began to understand, I began to understand the death of of the the Gold Star parents and what they were grieving with in a very different way. That's right. And I appreciate that. What these parents do deal with is, again, as I said, the unexpectedness, the suddenness. And then on top of that, there's these things, there's these factors that play into that military death, which in some ways hampers their ability to process their grief. And, you know, one of them was this belief that, well, your loved one, your loved one joined the military in this post 9-11 war. What did you expect? Well, I could tell you from absolute certainty, I expected my loved one to come home. I married a pilot. And even though we had the quote-unquote conversation about what if and what should, he assured me, I could still see it as plain as day. He said, I'm well-trained, I'm well-equipped. He said, and I can guarantee you that anything that happens in that aircraft, I'm going to get it on deck. And you have to have that type of faith in your loved one, and he or she has to have that type of faith in themselves. So when tragedy strikes, it just comes across, it just is counter to the belief that, you know, my child is, is young and invincible and well-trained, and how could, how could he be dead? Parents, parents have a hard time grappling with that, as do all Gold Star families. And don't you think that it, it's like you just said, or you alluded to that, they have to feel that way? Because you can't go through every day knowing that you're thinking that your child's going to die. You have to really believe really believe that they're, that they're coming home, that they are coming back, just to get, I think, get through the day, I would imagine. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, and if you're a family, you may worry a little bit more, let's say, if they do deploy into a combat theater of operations, you're going to worry more. Or if they have a really high, you know, a high, um, oh, are you, they have a difficult job, so they're special operations, you know, or they do ordnance disposal, or they're in, in aviation where it is dangerous. So you may worry more about them, but, you know, in order to live as a military family, you really have to embrace the, you have to embrace the belief that they're good at what they do, okay, and they've got a lot of good leadership and equipment, and they're going to come home. Otherwise, you're going to, you're not going to do well in the, as a military spouse or a military mom or dad. One of the things also, I think, that is, that, that I've thought about, uh, when some, when, when someone in the military dies and, uh, the news does this all the time, and they talk about this 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 man or woman, this young man or woman being a hero, a hero, a hero, a hero. And you're thinking, but n- not everybody is a hero. And what it does is, and I'd like you to talk about this because you do mention this in the book, is that 
this is a person, and it is, mm-hmm. if you make them out a hero, then you sort of lose that person in the process. Who are they really? They're, you know, and, and that's really important for the parent, the gold star parent, to be able to talk about in the whole grieving process. That's so true. You know, when we lose someone, we all have a tendency of putting them on that fast track to sainthood. And when we, you know, when we want to remember only the good, and really we have to have realistic memories of our loved ones, and that's the good and the not so good, you know, because there are things about our loved ones that we didn't like. And on this business of being a hero, we have servicemen and women who die heroically. They die in combat. They are in a life, life protecting, um, excuse me, situation. But in reality, since 9-11, we've lost 23,000 service members in the line of duty. 7,000 of them were because of Iraq and Afghanistan. And yet we've lost another 16,000 in the line of duty since 9-11 that were not involved in war. And this is another thing that the American public doesn't understand is that men and women die every day in the line of duty with unnoticed, regular, unnoticed regularity that doesn't make the evening news. And so what about those parents? These are the ones we have. You're talking about 16,000. Um, sure. Yeah. And it, it, What do what we do? What does the military do and what do we do? Because I think those are two, obviously, they may be separate things. What do we do as a family, as a, a friend? How do we interact? Uh, what can we give And and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, when we are uh, trying to offer support to a military right. family who has lost their right. their son or daughter? I could speak from experience with this question because my late husband, Ken, he did, he was not a hero. He didn't die a hero's death. He was piloting an aircraft that exploded about 500 feet off the ground and we lost a crew of seven. When people say, well, he didn't die in combat, I said, no, he died doing his job. And his job was to be operationally ready with that aircraft. Because if and when they received a tasking order to go, we expect all of our military personnel to be in top form. So my husband died doing his job. And if his job happened to be to be in support of readiness, and their, their larger job is to help protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, I'm okay with that. However, though, we are the country, and, and this is it's not an intentional thing. I think it's an evolution thing over time, is that we're just pre-programmed that if someone doesn't die in combat, their death is seen as less relevant and it's seen as less important. And the families feel that in the amount of support they get. And it was very hard after 9-11 because while there was an outpouring of help and support for our war casualties, very often there were families who... Loved ones died, you know, an honorable death in the line of duty that were left out of that. And that just serves, again, to disenfranchise the family because then they walk away feeling that their loved one's life maybe didn't matter as much and that it wasn't, it wasn't validated and they didn't really receive all the support that they got. And that's hard. And that's, that's a cultural thing that we have to work to change. So how do we work to change? What do we do? I mean, obviously, you've written a book about it. So sure. uh, any, anybody who's listening to the show who might know someone who just lost a, a son or a daughter in the military, what do they do? What do they say? I think even just generally speaking, people have difficulty saying anything uh, when someone dies, even if it's not a child, either out of, you know, anybody, uh, 
people are, especially it's cultural too, I think, as you say, uh, Americans have difficulty talking about death. You know, someone dies. And I've been to funerals where uh, people are afraid to even mention the person's name somehow. Right. Uh, they were alive, you know, a day or two ago, and now they're dead, and no one wants to talk about them. So right. we do have, right. yeah. We do, you know, and we have evolved into this very death avoidance society. And um, I was fortunate in a sense, I grew up in a huge family in, in New Jersey. And we had, I mean, a really large family. So every year in our family, basically somebody died and somebody was born. And it was just like, you know, just like clockwork. So we became aware of death um, as, as it is a part of life, even those deaths that are out of norm and out of circle like this one. So what do we say? This is always the toughest thing, as you said, both military and civilians face is because we're so uncomfortable with this issue of death. First thing we have to do is stop trying to fix people's grief. When we offer condolences, all we want to do is say we're sorry. We don't need to fix their grief with platitudes or cliches. They don't work and they're not well received. So, for instance, what I tell my audience... Pardon? No, go ahead. Okay, what I tell my audiences are, you know, depending how uncomfortable you're going to feel with the family of the fallen is going to depend on how well you knew the service member, if you knew him at all, how well you know the parents, what's your relationship, is it a business relationship, a community, et cetera, how well you know them, and what are your own feelings about, you know, about life, about death, and about loss. Here's, here's something that's not going to fail them. What you do when you want to offer condolences is you say, I'm sorry for your loss. A better thing to say is, I'm sorry for the loss of your son, because now we've just identified that relationship. The best thing to say is, I'm sorry for the loss of your son, David, because now we've expressed our condolences, identified the relationship, and personalized it. And here's where people get themselves into trouble. It's okay after you say that to stop talking. And that's hard to do. And so if we do feel the need to say something else after that, what I normally do with families of the fallen is I'll say to the mom and dad, because men and women deal with grief differently, but I'll say, thanks for raising a good son. Thanks for raising a good daughter. And parents appreciate that because they did raise a son or daughter who was willing to to enlist. It hasn't failed me so far. And the other thing we don't want to do when we offer condolences is we don't want to look down and mumble because we're not offering condolences to our shoes. We want to look at the person, make them feel as if you're talking to them, and be heard. One of the things that always bothers me is when people say, I can't imagine how you feel, sort of trying to distance themselves from, well, this could, it has a feeling of like, this could never happen to me, or I've Mm -hmm. never, I've never had any tragedy that affected me in, in, in such a way. How do you feel? I mean, that to me is something that I would never want to say, but I hear it a lot uh, Mm -hmm. in these kinds of situations. Right. Yeah, Catherine, there's a whole long list of cliches that, you know, I'd like to ban about 20 of them. And that's, that's one of those was, I can't imagine, you know, I, I can't see myself in your shoes. Well, what do you want to say that for? I couldn't see myself in my shoes either. You know, this, this isn't something I chose. You know, this is something that happened to me. Another one that really just, 
infuriates me personally with condolences is when people say, take your hand and they say, oh dear, don't worry, time heals all wounds. In reality, time heals nothing. What time does is it gives us the opportunity to do the work that grief demands. And we've all, we've all seen people, you know, sometimes they're older people and you think, oh my goodness, they're stuck in grief. They, they're just so stuck in this, even though it's a death that happened 25, 30, 40 years ago. Again, we have to do the work that, that grief demands. One of the big complaints that military widows had, and I could tell you with certainty, I heard this myself, was literally at my husband's funeral, somebody said, oh dear, you're young, you'll get married again. <laughs> And I thought to myself, well, this is special. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice thought you're telling me here while we're burying a service member, my husband. So really, you know, we, we shouldn't use, we shouldn't in, let's say, impart our religious beliefs or those religious cliches that we have, you know, and there's, a, there's an abundance of them. You know, it was God's will. Um, you know, it's not a good thing to say because you don't know, even if you share the same faith with a person, you don't know where that person is in terms of that spiritual side of their grief because there's a large spiritual component of grief that you're not aware of until you go through it so all of these cliches my hot button with cliches (laughs) (laughs) but it's important because i mean that's sort of i mean to me i I, that's what i hear all the time um and obviously you do too now you have your you're a bird a board certified counselor you had the you are a military, uh, a military widow, and then mm-hmm. you went on, and I, I, I I'm assuming this may have been part of the way you dealt with your grief, as starting this grief solutions training company. Um, yeah, you know, it was, it's if, when I look back and reflect upon the whole process. When when my first husband was killed, I was nowhere. I, I was an engineer. And I was an engineer and I was a military instructor, so I was nowhere even associated with the, the field of counseling. And I went on to do that for several years afterwards. But in this town here of Norfolk, Virginia, another widow and I started, for bond of a better term, we started collecting military widows. We found we all had something in common and that we felt we, felt we were very misunderstood in the civilian sector, even in a military town, we were misunderstood, and we felt we didn't fit in any place, and we couldn't find the answers that we were looking for. So about seven, eight years after Ken was killed, I decided I left, I left the Department of the Navy, and I picked up an advanced degree in counseling and went to work in that field, thinking, thinking I could do something different with my life at that point. And then 9-11 happened. And after 9-11, I left my counseling job, um, to co-author the book that I wanted when my husband was killed. And so with the co-author, I wrote Military Widow, A Survival Guide. And essentially that's what it was because one of the things I found out from going through the experience of being a military widow is there's not a lot of literature on military loss. In fact, it's very limited. So when you go looking for a, a book, a survival guide, anything, any resources that are going to speak to your grief, okay, there wasn't any. There were memoirs and there were stories, but there was nothing that said, this is what you're dealing with, here's what to expect, and here's how to work through it. So hence, that's how Military Widow came about. And it was a natural for me. I had been a Navy instructor, so it was natural for me to go back into the teaching mode. And I had the honor of really working with a lot of the casualty assistance providers, casualty teams, 
um, for, for most of the Iraq and Afghanistan war. Joanne, why do you think the military hadn't addressed this? I mean, we've been in wars since the beginning of time, right, or beginning of mankind. So, uh, you know, as you say, there was just no literature, no information, even within the community. Um, Very little. Yeah, it was very little. And there was actually no information, even worldwide. When we started doing the literature searches, we couldn't find anything, any basically substantial studies on it. And there's a lot of reasons. You know, we could hypothesize about the reasons, and they're just that. Uh, I think my opinion, actually, is going to be that we came out of the era of Vietnam where the military service was just so disregarded and so disdained uh, that, you know, there was nothing there that helped support them. And World War II was a different experience. It was 70 years ago. But after Vietnam, I interviewed too many Vietnam widows that wanted to talk to me. And I'm thinking, gosh, this is, this is a long time ago. But nobody, they weren't allowed to even talk about their loss. And so they wanted to be interviewed for this book because they wanted something good to come out of that. But uh, the first time I heard this from a Vietnam widow, I was appalled. And that she said, after her husband was killed... There, she used to get phone calls of people saying, I don't feel sorry for you. You know, your husband was a baby killer, which was a big phrase back in the Vietnam era. And the first time I heard it, I thought that was just one off. And then I heard that again and again in different forms where the public would actually disenfranchise and basically you know, just disdain their loss. It was horrible. So these women carried that around for all these years. So this element of, of being accepting... <clears throat> excuse me, or being you know, supportive of military loss has really grown in leaps and bounds, I'd say, since 9-11. So we're on a different track, which is a good thing. Um, we only have a few more minutes before mm-hmm. we have to say goodbye. So what would you suggest, you know, to, to those who are actually to Gold Star families themselves, anyone who's listening, but also, as mm-hmm. I say, to people who want to support them? Um, obviously, your book, that's one thing. And your, but your organization now, where is it? How, your, your company, your training company, who do you train? Mm-hmm. Where do you go? Okay. Um, it is a training company. And what I do is I teach normally, well, I teach a variety of audiences. But I've spent a lot of time with both civilian and military personnel who are involved in crisis response, casualty assistance, things like that. And I've also, I teach those not only what they need to know. It's very practical. The engineer in me offers very practical type of training. Uh, but likewise, you know, what do you do with the stress? How do, you, how do you set boundaries for yourself so that it just doesn't build up within you? For families, obviously, that's a different type of audience. And again, they just appreciate the validation that this is what they experience. I was up in Canada last year, and I was teaching to a group, and this dad came up to me afterwards, and he said, you just described the last 12 years of my life. He said, and I didn't even know, he said, what, what that was about. He goes, you just described it. You just put words to it. And he, you know, he was delightful, and he was, he was just so appreciative of that. So one of the things that happens is when you talk about military loss, it transcends boundaries. I think another uh, so thing that we didn't thing. have an opportunity to talk about, and obviously um, um, uh, it's something that you cover, but the loss for siblings is different than the loss for parents. Um, and that's, oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, that's a whole other area of grieving. Yeah, I could sum that up in one sentence, and that's I had heard someone say as a sibling that she received a grand total of one sympathy card. And, you know, people would come up to her on the street, she lost her brother. You know, your brothers and sisters are the longest natural relationships we're going to have in, on this, in this world. 
longer than marriages, longer than our parent relationship. It's the longest relationship. And um, she said people would come up to her and say, oh, how are you? How's your mother doing? How's your father holding up? But nobody asked about her. And that's not an uncommon event. I think that's very typical. Uh, j- yeah, you know, just, it is. You know, um, <clears throat> how are your parents doing? Are they doing okay? But really, n- nothing about you. Nothing about you and your right. relationship. Yeah. So, minute left. What do we do? We get to inform you a survival guide for Gold Star parents and those who support them. We can buy it bookstores everywhere, online, mm-hmm. Amazon. And what about websites that we can go to? Websites or a, go to yeah. is www.griefsolutions.net. Um, that's www.griefsolutions.net. And I will just add one comment about this book because a lot of people hear the title and think, oh, it's for parents. I realized I had to put something in for those who assist. The last three chapters cover what you need to know, what to say, what not to say, best practices to help out. Great. Thanks so much. People don't go through grief in a vacuum. They need help. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of good good information and good advice. Joanne Steen. Thank you. I appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 